0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 60 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question Are there reasons beyond faith to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Happy leap year, friends. Today is the rarest day in our calendar with I guess the one exception being that legendary February the 30th that sometimes shows up on milk carton expiration dates. Because the Robert M- Murray McShane Bible reading plan that we're following in this podcast does not include February 29th, or February 30th for that matter, we could have had a free day today, but that would not have been seemly. The pod must go on. So today's one scripture is First Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. Let's read it and then come back and discuss some reasons to believe in the resurrection and some reasons to believe in the reliability of the Bible. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved— if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me." Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ "...has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power." For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do to me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen to that. So today we're going to talk about one sort of reason to believe that the resurrection is factual and historical. It really happened. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but there are reasons to believe that what the Bible says is true and reliable. I want to point you to a book I wrote. It's called Easter Fact or Fiction, 20 Reasons to Believe Jesus Factually Rose from the Dead. You can get that on Amazon. Just search for it. Or you can come to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. And you can check out the link on today, episode 60's post. There's also a few other links there that will take you back to episode 44, episode 17, and some other things I wrote on my blog at chaseatompson.com about the resurrection. I want to open with a quote from Pastor Tim Keller. He says this, If you were going to make up a story about the resurrected Jesus Christ, you would never make a story at like up like this. You might have some luminescent, radiant Jesus bursting through the doors and everyone shielding their eyes when he's resurrected. But instead, what do you have? Would you, if you were making up a story, do this? Jesus just appears in their middle and says... Do you have anything to eat? Look how magnificent. Look what a faith building experience. And they give him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it. Seriously, says Keller. If you were making up a story about the resurrection of Jesus, you just wouldn't say things like this. Why would that even be in there? It's so mundane. How odd. How completely uninspiring. Why would it be there? The only right answer is if you're reading literature, it must have happened. Why else would you put it in? Legends, says Keller, are not like this. And he's absolutely right. The number one critical theory today about the resurrection of Jesus is that it's been legendized, that almost zero real historical scholars, I'm not talking about Christians, I'm talking about historical scholars, almost zero of them believe that Jesus didn't exist. The, the, The mighty vast majority of them believe that. If you want to find somebody who believes Jesus didn't exist, go look for some YouTube videos because there's plenty of cranks and clanks and uh, amateur historians out there that believe that. But this is not something that real historians believe. That is not to say that many skeptical atheist historians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Their prevailing theory is that Jesus' resurrection was legendized over years after he died. The problem with that skeptical theory is the New Testament accounts simply don't read like legends. As Pastor Keller has just pointed out to us, they're not very embellished. They're sort of plain and mundane. Other than the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, of course, one of the oddest things about the... All, the resurrection accounts in all four Gospels is their obvious lack of drama and embellishment. As Dr. Keller points out, Jesus just kind of appears there in front of the disciples. They cower, they think he's a ghost, but after getting their courage back, he just, they just give him some fish. If Hollywood had scripted the resurrection, Jesus would have come back in a blaze of glory surrounded by a fiery glow. Thomas, upon expressing doubt, would have either been divinely smited down or Jesus would have answered his doubts with such a perfect put down that the disciples would have spent the rest of their lives reminding him how he'd been put in his place by their master. After Jesus met with the disciples, he would have flown off and utterly wiped the floor with Pilate and Herod and the high priest, maybe even Caesar over in Rome. It would have been a blaze of glory and revenge. Every bad guy would have had learned their lesson the hard way at the hands of the mighty resurrected Jesus. And when all was said and done, Jesus would have rocketed back up to heaven with an amazing display of light and sound and angels all around him. That's what would have happened if the resurrection of Jesus had been mythically embellished or fabricated or exaggerated or invented. There would have been more drama, more comeuppance for the bad guys, more adoration for Jesus. Instead, he ate some fish. He talked with Peter about John. He broke bread with Cleopas and another guy walking on the Emmaus Road, and they didn't even recognize him at first. Other than the coming back from the dead part, it just seems kind of normal and downplayed, doesn't it? Even the ascension into heaven is downplayed in the Gospels and Acts. Think about it. Jesus floated up into heaven. How incredible would that have been to see? And yet Luke, who actually gives us the greatest detailed description of the ascension, merely writes this. While he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That's Luke twenty-four fifty-one 51-52. Matthew and John don't even write about the ascension. And when Luke revisits it in Acts, all he adds is a small little detail about the disciples' view of Jesus being blocked by a cloud and the appearance of two guys, maybe angels, in white clothes who chide the disciples for looking up at the sky. Any writer, even a bad one like me, could have made that scene sound amazing and could have done so much without embellishing or exaggerating it even a little bit, and yet they didn't. The drama was kept to an absolute minimum. It's very strange, really, when you think about it. I propose that this is a signifier of real historical testimony and the trustworthiness and the sobriety of the gospel writers. They didn't have to add to the story. They didn't have to stir up drama. They just told it like it happened and even seemingly downplayed some of the more amazing things. Upon his return, Jesus appeared to the women first and his brother and Peter and 500 believers. None of them seemed to be particularly important. Why not Herod? Why not Pilate? Why didn't Jesus seek revenge on his executioners? Maybe organize a beatdown at the very least of the Roman soldiers who had flogged him. Or why didn't he meet with somebody important like Joseph of Arimathea or the high priest? Wouldn't it have been awesome to see Caiaphas' face when Jesus returned? Wouldn't that have been a better story? And yet none of that happened. Instead, what we get is narrative that does not exaggerate or embellish or dramatize, and therefore, it just seems all the more reliable because of it. Every now and then, I get a bit of a wild hair, and I have a few extra bucks or whatever, and decide to promote uh, one of the podcast posts on the Bible Reading Podcast page on Facebook. By the way, go check it out. Give us a like. All you got to do is go to facebook.com and search for Bible Reading Podcast, and you'll see our page. Um Recently, I promoted a post that really brought out a lot of trolls and some interesting swears and a lot of anti-Christian memes. No, you know, no problem there. That's fine. I expect that sort of thing. But also, we had some skeptics come out with some reasons not to believe that Jesus was real. Usually, when I hear those, they're really pretty out there, ridiculous, erroneous. But some of the folks I interacted with on Facebook had some decent responses, and some of them were pretty persistent. So if you don't mind, I'd like to share a little bit of the dialogue that we had. One intellectual from England named Lawrence had this observation. No Roman historian, says Lawrence, had actually met Jesus. Elastic stretches and truth ceases to be truth once it's retold. None of the stories in the Bible were recorded by anyone who was there at the time that the Bible claims that they allegedly happened. The Bible stories were written by people without first-hand eyewitness accounts centuries after they were supposed to have happened. I've heard of people refer to this as mythology. Now, it's an interesting claim he makes. No Roman historian has actually met Jesus. This is what I wrote back to our friend Lawrence I started out a little snarky. Maybe I should have toned it down a little bit. But I said, Mr. Lawrence, this is quite frankly an absurd argument to make. Why would a Roman historian journey to Israel to meet a Jewish man who, according to the Bible, stayed the entirety of his ministry inside a country that is about one-third the size of Scotland? There would be no reason in the world for such a thing to happen. Number two, this will blow your mind, I think. There are exactly 3 Roman historians of any significance that were writing during the time of Jesus's active ministry. Were you aware of this? And I'll ask you, podcast listener, have you ever heard a skeptic say, "No Roman historian during Jesus's lifetime ever wrote about him?" Well, we don't know that to be true, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But it I've heard that argument made a few times. Here's how you answer it. There were only three Roman historians that wrote any significant Roman history during the lifetime of Jesus. Number one, Seneca the Elder. He died in AD 39, right around the time Jesus did, maybe a little bit afterwards. Seneca wrote a history of Rome but that history is almost entirely lost to history. We don't have a copy of it. We don't know hardly anything about it, as are many of the books and writings of the first century due to age, disintegration, intentional destruction, and events like the fires at the libraries of Antioch and Serapium. So the number of manuscripts and writings that we have from the first century of any kind is absurdly low. Papyrus and vellum and things like that, they just don't last that long. And if you're thinking about New Testament manuscripts, the, the early church in Christians, when these things got worn out, they didn't bury them. They didn't throw away, throw them away. They thought it was more godly to burn them instead of, you know, let them rot or whatever. So we have very, very few anything, not just Christian things of Anything from Greece in the first century, or the the first century, uh, Greece or Rome, or hardly anything. So we, there was a history book written by Seneca the Elder, Uh, It's Lost to History. The second Roman historian, Claudius the Emperor, he died in AD 49. He wrote a ton of stuff. He wrote an eight-volume history of Carthage and a 20-volume history of the Etruscans, All of his works are lost to history. Like I said, libraries have burned down. Books have faded. We don't have even a copy of anything he wrote. Did he write about Jesus? I suppose it's possible, but kind of highly unlikely that you would write about Jesus in a history of Carthaginians and Etruscans. Finally, one more. Marcus Cluvius Rufus. He was a Roman historian and a statesman who did write histories in the first century, and every single one of his works are lost to history. So, Lawrence, given that we have three Roman histories, uh, historians writing during the time of Jesus, and given the fact that almost one hundred percent of their historical works are lost to history, what conclusions can we draw from that? That's correct. No conclusions whatsoever. Later Roman historians wrote extensively about Jesus. Maybe they did during his lifetime too, or not. We have no idea either way. You could also say that no Roman historian wrote about Augustus Caesar or Julius Caesar during their lifetime, at least none that we have any surviving works from, because they're all gone. They're all lost to history. Surely, certainly, some of those guys wrote about Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus, but we don't have their works, so we don't know. As to the second half of your paragraph, you are again, Lawrence, making wild claims without the least bit of evidence to back it up. The New Testament accounts claim to be firsthand. They are very early, and there are thousands of Greek manuscripts and fragments that back up the claim that they are very, very early. Were they written in the first century by eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry? I believe they absolutely were. I believe they're absolutely what they claim to be, but honestly, I cannot prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt. How could you prove that, really? But I believe the preponderance of evidence over the years indicate they were. But here's the thing. If you want to say they weren't, the problem is there's absolutely zero proof, zero, that the New Testament accounts were not written in the first century by eyewitnesses. Now, not every scholar agrees one way or the other, but the fact is we have no evidence, historical, paleographical, or linguistic, that indicates that the New Testament accounts were anything other than what they claimed to be. And by the way, speaking of the uh, of um, wild claims in history, Dan Brown makes a claim that the early church changed the Bible to make Jesus more of a divine being than he claimed to be, and all that kind of stuff. The problem with that claim is, again, zero evidence. We have lots of early Greek manuscripts of the Bible. Yes, there are variants between them, but those variants are practically meaningless in terms of the big doctrines. There's no evidence whatsoever that things like Jesus claiming to be the Son of God or uh, Jesus being raised from the dead or the miracles or anything like that, no evidence whatsoever that those things were added by the early church at a later date. Our next skeptic was Philip. And Philip was saying that he did not trust any of the Israeli or Jewish witnesses to Jesus, he would have only trusted Roman historians who wrote about Jesus. Well, we've already covered the problem with that. We have zero Roman histories that survived the first century. But this was my reply to Philip the Skeptic. I said, Philip, basically what you're saying is that you don't trust the reports of the eyewitnesses that were on site for the ministry of Jesus. And you would only trust the reports of historians that were hundreds of miles away in their own country and whose works are lost to history. For a geography refresher, it is worth noting that the distance from Rome to Jerusalem is not just hundreds. It's over a thousand miles. It's 3,000 500 kilometers that's how long it would take to get from rome to jerusalem 3500 kilometers the length of the entire nation of israel is around 400 kilometers in other words that that kind of skepticism is completely without basis the four gospels are eyewitness accounts written by people who lived in the land where the events occurred and lived during the time the events occurred? I suspect the only reason you, Philip, reject them as reliable is because you don't like their conclusions. He also mentioned Josephus, and he said that that when Josephus mentions Jesus, it is a much later um, interpolation or addition that was added by Christian scholars. There. Could be some truth to that. That's very highly debated, but this is what I I wrote to him. Also, on your Josephus contention, you're way outside the bounds of modern critical Bible scholarship. I'm not talking about Christian scholars, but scholars of antiquity. There are at least two mentions of Jesus in Josephus. And as a refresher, Josephus was a Jewish-Roman first century historian who lived well after the time of Jesus, but he did write a couple of times about Jesus, at least two times. The first and most extensive mention of Jesus may indeed contain an interpolation, but that's not been proved. It's quite the matter of debate, though the consensus among modern critical scholars is that some Christian writing several hundred years after Josephus did insert some things into Josephus's words there, and that made it into further copies of Josephus's histories. The modern scholarly consensus is, however, that that interpolation was laid on top of an authentic passage about Jesus, dating back to the first century, just one that was added to by later Christian scholars. There's another major mention of Jesus in Josephus, uh, which says he's the brother of James. It's doubted by very few scholars, and almost all of them believe it to be genuine. So the overwhelming consensus of modern critical scholars is that Josephus, the first century Jewish-Roman historian, wrote about Jesus. It's fine if you want to be a skeptic, but you need to know that the vast majority of the skepticism that that Philip expressed in his post is actually based on faulty historiography and skeptical theories that most modern scholars dismiss. In an era... That lacked internet, telegraph, television, and newspapers, the news about Jesus, who again spent his life a country a third the size of Scotland, traveled slowly and organically, but it did indeed reach and transform the entire Roman Empire. Nobody doubts that fact. A question for us to grapple with in our skepticism is this— how did the testimony and message of Jesus take hold of and transform the entire Roman Empire within a couple of hundred years of Jesus' lifetime? Now, lest you assume that those people were morons who would believe anything, it might be worth remembering that historically, many people of that time claimed to be gods, including many of the Roman emperors. How did their message not transform the world? While the message of Jesus did, you can't explain the expansion of the good news of Jesus and the growth of Christianity by money, by power, by ethnicity, by clever strategy, or really any other way. Something has to explain the power of the message of Jesus. I believe the explanation is the resurrection and the Holy Spirit. But how do you explain it, Philip? One other note, given what you've written so far, and I've omitted some of Philip's posts. They were pretty lengthy. I said, I suspect you have a great respect for Roman historians. One of the earliest Roman historians we have surviving works from is Pliny the Younger. He wrote about Christians in the early 2nd century. However, in terms of manuscripts... We have only one portion of Pliny's writing that dates to earlier than the ninth century. And that one person is from the late fifth century, hundreds of years after the events that Pliny the Younger records. Now, historians don't have a problem with this at all, considering we have actually have a total of zero manuscripts from Greek or historians or Roman historians that date to the first century on any subject. Pliny the Younger's historical record is considered quite reliable despite the paucity of manuscript evidence to document that, their connection to the second century. There's only two Pliny the Younger manuscripts that are y- younger than 900 A.D., there are many Greek New Testament fragments and manuscripts of the Bible that date much earlier than the oldest surviving Pliny the Younger manuscript. There are old Latin ones, Coptic ones, etc., all scattered across the Middle East. The sheer volume of extant and old New Testament manuscripts dwarf any other ancient document from Greece or Rome. This should demonstrate some level, of remarkable reliability to all but the most hardened skeptic. If your skepticism doesn't stand up to evidence that seems to disprove it, is it really intellectually honest or just an unwillingness to believe despite significant evidence to the contrary? Whew, well, I realized that got into the weeds a little bit and was a little bit scholarly. One of the reasons why I wanted to include it in the podcast today is that most people who go to church rarely debate or discuss Christianity with a intellectual atheist or agnostic. And sometimes when that happens, the confident intellectual atheist or agnostic will begin to produce what seems to be facts and historical truths the way they are saying it, but if you actually know the history, they're not true. It's not evidence at all of the lack of resurrection of Jesus, for instance, that a Roman historian didn't write about it. And to say a Roman historian would have written about it if it was true is fairly ridiculous, considering we, again, have zero, zero, zero writings of first century Roman historians. Maybe they did write about it. Maybe they didn't. We don't know. It would be kind of odd for them to do that, considering... Again, no internet, no telegraph, no television, and it was 3,500 kilometers away. But the fact of the matter is we have no idea because there's no surviving manuscripts from that time. Well, anyway, I hope that was interesting for you to think about. Don't worry. We probably won't go that deep into apologetics in the future, but maybe you can tell that it is something of a hobby of mine, something I enjoy writing about. That is all for the show today. Back tomorrow with four chapters of scripture and less and less of me rambling on. May God bless you, Godspeed, and thanks for listening.